Welcome to Lawson Insight. I'm Mark Fancourt-Smith. I use the pronouns he, him. I'm a partner in Lawson Lundell's Vancouver office. And I'm Alexandra Stoichev, and I use the pronouns she, her. I'm an associate in the firm's Calgary office. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. On this episode, we will be speaking about copyright infringement, the Oscars, and Top Gun Maverick, my favorite movie of the summer. (laughs) (laughs) So we wanted to have this uh, recording this week because the Oscars are coming up, and so we thought it would be a good time to talk about copyright option agreements generally, and in particular, how they drive the movies that get made and the movies that make it to theaters. And so um, I thought about wearing my aviators for this episode, but uh, being an audio medium, yeah, being an audio medium, exactly, (laughs) it may not have made too much of a difference. But um, we wanted to to chat a little bit about option agreements today. So, Mark, what can you tell me about the sort of two types of common option agreements that are out there? Well. Perhaps we can take a step back and and look at you know, how movies are created. You know, some are original screenplays, some are what's known as adapted, whether they're adapted from some other literary work. Um, there has to be an agreement with the original author by way of which these studios can get the rights to use the story, commonly called option agreements, and they can often have. There's two types. There's ones which are simply for a specific length of time or which can be terminated after a certain amount of time. And then there are others which are perpetual subject to use. So on that one, for example, if if you have ever wondered why we keep getting reboots of the Spider-Man series every five years as if America has forgotten how he became Spider-Man, <laughs> it's because if Sony doesn't make a Spider-Man movie every five years or so, they lose the rights to the character. And they are absolutely not going to do that, which is why then we have had, uh, at last count, three, I think, uh, retellings of the origin story and trying to start another franchise to make sure that they retain the rights. Um, Top Gun, for example, as as we're going to talk about, uh, was different. It was done pursuant to an option agreement, which was terminable. So, for those of you who don't know, in, in 1983, there was an article written called Top Guns uh, about the Naval Air Station in Miramar, California, the, the fighter training station. Paramount Pictures, shortly after it was written, obtained the, the rights to it. And the underlying article had been written in a very sort of, uh, not sort of a, a reporting way, but rather really focusing on a couple of pilots and their journey through the, the training program. And so seeing that, it seemed like a story that could be ad- adapted into a movie, which of course, it was Tony Scott directed, Tom Cruise starred in, in the 1985 movie Top Gun. Um, and so that was how they derived the rights to that story. Now, the reason we're talking about it today is because there is a copyright infringement lawsuit which has been brought by the estate uh, of the author of that article as against uh, Paramount Pictures in respect of Top Gun Maverick. Okay, and I'm guessing that that lawsuit's been brought in California. Um yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, but what can you tell us about that lawsuit and sort of where it's at in terms of the stage of it? Well, and you sort of have to go back almost and, and look at the, the tortured production history of Top Gun Maverick, which, it, you know, the idea for it started in 2010. Cruise was attached to it in 2016. The script was being written and kind of finalized in 2017. And then in January 2018, the estate wrote to Paramount Pictures and sent them a notice of termination of option, uh, which was going to take effect in two years. So it was, I think, January 24th, 2018, giving notice that the option agreement was going to expire on January 24th, 2020. Now, we don't have Paramount's side of the story yet. And as, as we hear, what they brought was sort of a procedural motion to try and dismiss. And so they haven't actually filed a statement of defense yet. But 
It's interesting to note that they started shooting principal photography in June of 2018, so after the notice had been given. The movie was supposed to come out in the summer of 2019, so it would have come out before the option agreement terminated. Um, but then during the filming of it, they needed extra time for some of those fantastic action sequences, which were just incredible. Which were amazing, um, yeah. yeah. Which were amazing. I think we could take it as red. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah. And and if Top Gun doesn't win Best Picture, this will be a crime against humanity. Um, <laughs> but then it was, it was pushed back and going to be released in June of 2020. Of course, uh, certain events, which we may remember starting in March of 2020 or so, uh, a.k.a. COVID, then pushed that back because they weren't not going to release it in theaters. So ultimately, it wasn't even released until 2022, two years after the expiry of the option agreement. And so the lawsuit uh, is for a couple of things. One is copyright infringement saying this is still derived from the original article and there's substantial similarity to that, as well as breach of contract because no attribution was given to the author when the movie was released and that was required uh, under the option agreement as well. Right. So basically, you published this too late. You published it after the option agreement had expired. Yeah, you didn't have the right to make use of or to derive something from the original work at the time that this was put into the world, at the time that this was released. Right. Uh, and therefore, liable for uh, damages or in injunctive relief and so on. And so at this stage, Paramount hasn't filed a statement of defense yet. Nothing has been proven, and everything is just, of course, allegations at this stage. So we haven't heard yet what their official position is uh, in response to the lawsuit. Uh, but we do certainly have an inkling of it, as I understand from the motion to dismiss that they filed, right? Yeah. And so what, what was that all about? They were trying to dismiss the entirety of the claim at an earlier stage? Yeah, what you can do, and we have similar processes uh, here in BC and Alberta, which is to what they said was the way this has been pleaded itself is deficient. So there's certain elements you have to plead to make out a claim for copyright infringement, and they said the way that the claim has been drafted itself is deficient. So even without considering the evidence, even without considering the merit, this court should strike out that claim um, because the, the the essential elements just aren't there. Uh, they did go a little bit into the question of substantial similarity because when it comes to copyright infringement, it has to be substantially similar and sort of a, a, a common, you know, there's some differences between our jurisdictions, but you know, what what is similar is it can't just be a completely insignificant similarity. It has to be something substantial uh, or a substantial similarity of a substantial amount. And so, uh, although they were pleading, you know, arguing this on primarily a legal basis, they Paramount did sort of set out its position that it doesn't consider that Top Gun Maverick is substantially similar to the original 1983 article at all. So there was some discussion of that. But basically, they said, we don't even need to plead a defense yet. We shouldn't have to. This is just deficient on its face, and you should dismiss it as such. Okay, and what did the court say? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the court essentially the court found, uh, and it reiterated that it, it said, "Look, at, at this point, uh, it's not the function of the court to go into the merits. It really is a question of have the pleadings been done sufficiently. You don't have to have complete encyclopedic exactitude, but you know the the courts do require a certain standard because, of course, it's only fair to a defendant to know what exactly is the case they have to meet. What what have they been said to do?" And so that's sort of what the function of these kind of applications are for, is to sort of police the pleadings a bit. So they can't just be completely vague pleadings where a defendant just says, well, what am I supposed to have done? What, you know, how am I supposed to defend against this? But the court found that here it had been sufficiently pleaded. It was clear to the defendant you know, what, they, 
were alleged to have done or not done, and that the essential elements for copyright infringement had had been made out. And so the motion to dismiss uh, was self-dismissed this last November. Right. Okay. And and not being familiar with California process, but in a Canadian jurisdiction, what would then typically happen is, of course, that it would proceed through the normal litigation path towards a trial, absent sort of any sort of negotiation or resolution or yeah or other other way of concluding the matter. But basically, we know at this stage the case is continuing. Yeah, and actually, to, to your point about uh, some other avenue, it, it, looking at the court docket, it appears that a mediator has been selected, so the parties are going to explore alternative dispute resolution. But yeah, in the absence of the summary dismissal, the, the litigation proceeds either down the litigation track or alternative dispute resolution, and, and it looks like that's what's happening here in the, in the California case. It's also interesting, just as a side note, that you know we are getting to see this through publicly filed documents or review these publicly filed documents um, mm-hmm. and that it isn't going through an arbitration process because often these types of things are behind closed doors. We don't get to see the, the private arbitration documents. But here, you know, these documents are publicly available being part of the court system. Yes. A, a interesting question as to whether or not they will be required to file a statement of defense before the mediation because if, if they're not, then and it resolves the mediation, we may never see. Right what they said their defense was. But one other thing which was, was interesting was this idea of substantial similarity. And there's sometimes a misconception as to what is protected by copyright. And it's, it's part of the, the fundamental bargain of, of intellectual property law, whether it's patents or, or copyrights, is you know for contributing to either the increase of knowledge in patents, you get, in return, a limited-time monopoly for it. That's your reward. For copyright, for sort of contributing, if we're talking about the literary area, for contributing to culture, you are given a time-limited monopoly on that work or the expression of it. And so what's protected is not the ideas themselves. You know, you can't copyright the idea of a flight school or fighter jets or pilots, but what is protected is the expression of it. How was the, the story actually written and expressed? And so that's interesting because sometimes... Um, there's there's the misconception that it's the ideas themselves that are protected. And there there was a case uh, back in 1990 in Calgary where a Calgary man sued 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, uh, alleging that he had come up with the idea of Ewoks, which were the little fuzzy creatures <laughs> in Return of the Jedi. Oh, oh I know Ewoks. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So he, he said that he had come up with a sort of a character sketch of – sketch, I mean, you know, words, not just the drawings – and actually called them Ewoks, these little fuzzy creatures who lived on a forest planet. And then a friend of his had written a script called Space Pets <laughs> and had sent it had sent it to 20th Century Fox and George Lucas. Whoa. Uh, and it went to trial. Um, and so ultimately what was found was that based on the work that the plaintiff had done, which was just kind of the notes about the character, those were not specific enough to really constitute expression of a character who could then be protected. It was really just kind of ideas about a primitive species of the alien living on a planet. His friend had put it into the screenplay, but his friend's screenplay wasn't at issue. It was just the character notes. And and he said, well, look, it's called an Ewok. You know, what more do you, do, do you need to know? And here you are. But the court found in that case it wasn't sufficiently expressed so as to be able to be protected. Um, an I- interesting side note was that what came out in the trial as well was George Lucas says... I, you know, look, successful movies breed lawsuits. And for that reason, I never, ever, ever open unsolicited mail for precisely this reason. If I just, I may miss out on some great collaboration ideas, yeah. but 
in the interest of self-preservation, I never opened a letter unless I had asked for it or I knew who it was or I was expecting it or knowing mm. who it was from. Interesting. Uh, and that's and that's not an uncommon practice uh, in movie studios. Just to try and if you can if you can say you have an established process, it provides some protection in in terms of cases like this. That's super interesting. I wonder if uh, the script for Space Pets was ever filed in court and. And whether we could get our hands yeah. on it. <laughs> we, we may be able to. We may be able to. As a last point, just on copyright, just like patents, uh, and it's time limited. You know, the, the, the author and their estate does not have protection over the expression or over the works forever. It's generally life of the author plus 75 years. And that is notable for a movie uh, which has not been nominated for Best Picture and never will be, by all accounts, because... <laughs> Um, what has just, to Disney's chagrin, become public domain is Winnie the Pooh. Oh. And Disney owns the rights to Winnie the Pooh. But now Winnie the Pooh is public domain, and anybody can use those characters to write any sort of story they want, and you probably know sort of where this is going. I know where this is going. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, a low-budget oh, no. slasher movie, which by all accounts <laughs> is dreadful. Oh, no. Was just released this year. Take you know, and and almost gleefully, part of their marketing was it's in the public domain now, so all bets are off. And oh, speaking no. of which, here is that movie. So that's one of oh, them. poor piglet. I, well, yeah, um, but yeah, just to put a, a final point of that's again, it's it's time limited protection. So. I suppose I, I'm not sure when uh, Mr. Yone, who, who wrote the Top Gun article, passed away, but 75 years after that, anybody will be able to make you know, any movies derivative of that. Should there still be a market for Top Gun movies? Because why not? Yeah. yeah. Well, and if, if they make them as well as they made this one this summer, oh my mm -hmm. gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll be watching the Oscars. I'll be thinking of this when I'm watching it. And uh, thanks for, for explaining all this, Mark. My pleasure. As, as we've said, part of the joy of, of being the hosts of the podcast is sometimes we can hijack it to talk about things we want to, <laughs> like, like Top Gun. We'll add that to our list of Led Zeppelin, the tragically hip, beer, and Top Gun of important yeah. topics we've covered. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us today on Lost in Insight, and special thanks to Brittany Haynes and Christian Stonehouse for producing, and to Lauren Dresselheis for uh, all the research on today's episode. You can stay up to date by connecting with us on social media using the handle at Lawson Lundell and by subscribing to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.